Well, it's just so great to see um, new friends here and some old friends as well joining us. And uh, it's so wonderful just to uh, be gathered together as church family, those who are members of this church. And just thank God for seeing Alistair this morning. Just so wonderful to see Alistair and Karen and the family here. So welcome. We, we see this is an answer prayer that you could be with us today. Let's pray before we come to consider God's word. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And so, Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would fill us with an inexpressible and glorious joy. In Christ's name, amen. Well, One Direction uh, was an X-Factor concocted boys band, and uh, they, their first single stormed to the top of the charts about 10 years ago, and the song was called What Makes You Beautiful. And the song goes something like this. You're insecure, don't know what for. You're turning heads when you walk through the door. Don't need makeup to cover up. Being the way you are is enough. Right, that's how it goes. Now, why was it a hit, you may wonder. Uh, well, uh, the genius of Simon Cowell uh, and the X Factor TV show format basically meant that there was a huge fan base just ready to buy this single as it was released. It's got a very catchy tune, and uh, lots of young girls thought the, uh, the band members were very cute. But I wonder also whether the lyrics kind of tap into something deeper, because the teenage years are full of insecurities. And deep down, we do long for reassurance. We would love for at least one person to say, this is what makes you beautiful. Being the way you are is enough. We would love that. And believe it or not, these ideas are in a very ancient song in the Bible. So please open back up to the Song of Songs that was read to us a moment ago. We began looking at this chapter last week. We considered the very first point on desire. But there's four elements to these opening verses. There's desire, insecurity, reassurance, and intimacy. And that's what we're going to consider uh, this morning. We saw last week this is a song in the Bible that celebrates human love between uh, a man and a woman. Without any introduction, we hear the innermost desires of the woman. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And she yearns to spend the rest of her life with this man. Take me away with you. Let us hurry, she says. She can imagine a very wonderful new future married to him. But no sooner are those desires and dreams heard that we hear something of the insecurities that plague her. 
And the first insecurity is about her attractiveness in verses 5 and 6. Her friends, possibly bridesmaids, declare, We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. And she agrees. Well, yeah, he's amazing. But she becomes very self-conscious about how she looks. Will he find her attractive? How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely. Daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyards I had to neglect. So she's so self-conscious, isn't she, of her appearance as a country girl. And she doesn't want her fashionable friends from the city of Jerusalem to stare at her. Now, I just think this is so contemporary. I've noticed that some women get really nervous when you hold up a camera to take a picture. Uh, Don't get too close. You're too close. You're too close. Uh, I don't want you to take a photo. Now, why why does this happen? Well, because they are so self-consciously critical of how they look. People want to very carefully curate their appearance and their online photographs. And so selfies are very carefully taken, lots of duck faces, whatever, I don't know, uh, carefully taken and, uh, and, and considered before they go onto the Instagram uh, page. And there's a whole industry devoted to this. And it's not just the cosmetic industry, but there's now a whole digital one. I was shown last week an app I could buy on my phone. I, I used the uh, app on this person's phone, and it's called Facetune. And uh, you can take a selfie, and with Facetune, you can enhance yourself digitally. You can make your eyes bigger. You can make your lips fuller. You can f- affect the shape of your, of your face and of your body. Uh, any blemishes can be kind of, you know, airbrushed out, and then when you've got it just right, you can post it online and watch all the likes come in about this amazing image that looks nothing like you. It's amazing people do this. I tried it myself, I have to confess, so I smiled, took a picture, and I noticed there were lots of grooves on my face. I, you know, quite surprising. So, but there's a smooth app. So I pressed the smooth app and I started smoothing those creases on my face, but they were still there. But thankfully, there's another uh, option, which is called smoother. So I tried that. And in the end, my face was so blurry, I, I couldn't tell who it was. Now, what is this all about? Well, we see pictures of the beautiful people on TV and social media influences on websites and And we become self-conscious about how do we measure up compared to them. Uh, Even young men are kind of getting start worked up about now where they've got six packs and the right sort of chiseled haircut. Some people's esteem rises or falls on how many likes they've got and whether they've got any positive comments on their social media page. But you know what the tragedy is? Is a lot of these pictures that we see on boardings and in magazines and online of the most beautiful people, they themselves are all photoshopped. 
And so actually we've created this ideal of beauty that is impossible to achieve. Not even the beautiful people look like that. And what is really distressing about this is some, and it's mainly young women, but it's not exclusively young women, are making themselves really unwell with eating disorders and lots of anxieties based on not looking like a false fancy picture of someone that's not even real. This is awful. Now, such insecurities are part of being human, and we see them right here in this song written 3,000 years ago. She knows she's not unattractive, but she worries about her dark skin. Dark am I, yet, yet lovely daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, she says. Now, I think it's important to say this is not an ethnic statement. It's not a racial statement. It's more of a class statement. Uh, the wealthy women, perhaps the daughters of Jerusalem, were able to stay inside, away from the harsh sun, and so they could keep their skin looking fairer and lighter. And this was the standard of beauty in their day. It's quite ironic. Today, the standard of beauty is lying on some beach in Bali looking very darkened by the sun, very bronze, but uh, not there. It was being fairer skin and lighter skin. Well, she was no stereotypical beauty. She was aware of that. She was a working class girl. She had to be outside doing agricultural work, taking care of the vineyard. It's almost a Cinderella type story, this. Uh, she says in verse 6, don't stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and, and made me... Um, take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. It seems that the family structure uh, where there's a family business, perhaps they're tenant farmers of a vineyard, maybe even it's the vineyard of, of King Solomon himself, and her father uh, is no longer around. You don't hear about him in the book at all. And uh, she pops, perhaps has these half-brothers who are not the kindest of people. And so she's being forced by her mother's sons to spend her days outside getting this dark suntan. And while the better off women are, have been able to spend their days going to spa treatments and getting facials and getting their nails and bodies pampered, she's had to work hard with her hands outside to the neglect of her own body. My own vineyard, she says, I had to neglect. And this is what makes her self-conscious about her looks. Would this man that she desires truly desire her? So she's insecure about her attractiveness. But secondly, she's also insecure about her access to him. If you look at verse 7, tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. She wants to be with him. But the problem with shepherds is they keep traveling around to find new pastures and how on earth is she going to find him? How is she going to get to him? And she'd like to be with him in his lunch break, but at the same time, she, doesn't, she wants to get there safely. She doesn't want her, uh, this to be misunderstood. She doesn't want to be a sort of wandering around asking lots of people where she can find this man and be mistaken for some sort of shrine prostitute wearing a veil. And you can learn about that in Genesis 38. You know, why should I be like a veiled woman, she says, beside the flocks of your friends? So she's, she's, she's got this insecurity about how she looks, the insecurity about how she's going to find him, and it, whether finding him is going to be misunderstood or not. These are her insecurities. 
And what makes this song just so delightful is the way her insecurities are met by his reassurances. And a wee side note about um, the NIV translation here. All the modern translations have helpfully tried to divide up the text of Song of Solomon with the he, the she, the friends. Now that's not in the original Hebrew scrolls, but the translators of the Hebrew are helping us as English readers because you can tell from the endings of Hebrew words whether it's a feminine or a masculine or it's singular or plural. And so they've helped us to understand the flow a bit by putting in these these, uh, these titles. But there's a bit of debate exactly where the division should be. And uh, if you read the English Standard Version or the, or, or the Christian Standard Bible, you'll see that they suggest that verses 8 to 11 are all he, uh, while the NRV kind of puts in the friends. And I, I kind of think, I, I, I agree with the ESV on this, although it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Uh, but I, I think this is his voice saying, if you do not know most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. Now, I think this is a more classy version of the One Direction, you're insecure, don't know what for uh, lyric. Because listen to his first words in the book to her. She is the most beautiful of women. All this don't stare at me stuff, it doesn't make sense to him. He, he can't take his eyes off her. She is the most beautiful of women. What did she look like? Well, the, the great thing is if you basically get a, a few artists together and you say, look, read the Song of Solomon and draw this woman and, uh, and then you compared the pictures. Do you know what you'd find? They would draw something completely different. Because what people would draw would be their idealized version of what a beautiful woman is. And the truth is that everyone's got a different version of what an ideal beautiful woman looks like. Every culture, every era defines what is most beautiful differently. As they say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And the great news for the woman in this song is that to him, she is the most beautiful of women. And he very wisely takes the time to reassure her that this is the case. Now, he does it in a way that would obviously have delighted her it's less well it doesn't quite work the same for us does it verse 9 I liken you my darling to a mare not many valentine cards uh, with pictures of horses uh, as, a, as a characteristic of, of, of the beloved but uh, you've got to remember it's a different culture and if you want to enter into the poetic metaphor of this, then next time you get a chance to go to the Royal Highland Show, go uh, and see some perfectly groomed, sleek, healthy horses with long manes being paraded around the showground. And you would imagine to be one of King Pharaoh's chariot horses, you would have to be the finest, most majestic looking horse available. And so she says, don't stare at me, I'm dark. And he says, dark like black beauty. 
I can't take my eyes off you. Her neck and her cheeks, well, they're beautiful to him. And he promises to beautify them even more as he promises to give her jewelry for her wedding day. Verse 10, your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of pearls. We will make your earrings of gold studded with silver. She does not need to worry about his love for her nor his desire to be seen with her in the middle of the day when all the shepherds are resting from the heat of the day. Verse 8, if you do not know most beautiful women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. Now as we have been studying this book, A Song of Songs, I've tried to make the point that this is not just another love song. Remember the opening verse. This is the song of songs. It's quite an incredible claim. It's saying of all the love songs ever written, this is the best song. Even better than One Direction, right? It is the song of songs. Now, if you think about this being in the Bible, uh, the King of Kings is, is the greatest king. The Holy of Holies is the most holy place where God dwells. And if you're writing about the song of songs and it's merely about human love, that's almost blasphemous. And I believe that while this does speak of human love, it is pointing to something much bigger, divine love. This is God's love for his people. This is Christ's love for his church. If you are in Christ, this is Christ's love for you. And let's think about applying this to ourselves then. Insecurity would be a very mild way of describing our anxiety of being in the presence of a holy God. A couple of weeks ago, we read from Genesis chapter 2 of Adam and Eve in the garden, naked and unashamed before each other and before the creator God who had blessed them with everything good and pleasing and put them in this beautiful garden to enjoy it together. But what happened? Well, they, they listened to the hissing lies of Satan. And they disobeyed God, and sin entered the world and brought terrible consequences. And we're still struggling with those consequences today. And the first consequence was this. It was at this point that Adam and Eve suddenly realized their nakedness. They became self-conscious suddenly. They tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. They experienced anxiety and shame and guilt in each other's presence and when God came at the end of the day, when the cool of the day to speak to them, they hid from God. That's what sin does. Sin separates us from God. And it produces shame and separation from each other. You know, don't stare at me is something quite deep inside all of us. We fear being scrutinized. If you want to start an aggressive conversation, start staring at a stranger on the street on the way home. See what reaction you get. What are you staring at? Who are you looking at? You, that's the way to start a fight, isn't it? Because we are anxious that people will see not just who we are on the outside, but somehow they, they will discern something about us on the inside. Uh, shameful things that we don't really want people to see. 
And we all feel this instinctively, I think, because we know that there's darkness inside of us. We know how twisted our thoughts and desires and our actions and our words can be. And you know what? As Christians, that can almost be intensified because the more we look at the loveliness and the beauty of Jesus, well, in comparison, we see our own moral ugliness. So how on earth could Jesus Christ look on his church? How on earth could Jesus Christ look on our lives and say, you are beautiful? I mean, lockdown for me has freshly revealed the ugliness of my personal sin. On top of my four children, we have a niece staying with us, and uh, so we have seven adults in our home. And we've been in the house for a long time together. And I have to confess, what it's revealed is my own selfishness and sin. How irritable I've got at times. How sharp my words have been. Because I selfishly want my own peace, my own comfort. I want life my way without other people interfering. And it's brought it all to the surface. And when I, when I you know, actually really got me down when I started thinking about this. Thinking how little sanctification there is in my life. I'm a pastor at Chapel and I'm still getting crabby with people in my home whom I love. So, how could it be that Jesus could love me? Well, this is one of the glorious aspects of the gospel that we need to really grasp deep down inside of us that this is indeed what Jesus thinks of us. Now, Martin Luther, one of the key reformers of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, he wrote this. The love of God does not find but creates what is pleasing to it. Let me say that again. Let me break it down. The love of God does not find that which is pleasing in it. The love of God creates what is pleasing to it. And he goes on to say this. The first part is clear because the love of God which lives in man loves sinners, evil persons, fools, weaklings in order to make them righteous good, wise, strong. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. And there's this wonderful line he says, therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. Isn't that beautiful? Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. We've got a brilliant picture of this in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Uh, he sees a vision of the high priest Joshua, but he's in no fit state to act as a priest. His, his, uh, Satan is standing there accusing him. No doubt his accusations are quite right. And all the ways he's invalidating his ministry. And he stands there dressed in filthy clothes, unclean, unrighteous. But in the vision, an angel instructs those standing around him, take off his filthy clothes. And Joshua hears these words, see, I have taken away your sin, and I'll put fine garments on you. 
See, the picture of receiving pure clothing is a brilliant picture of what the death of the Lord Jesus accomplishes for us. He takes away our filthy sins and we receive the pure garments of his own righteousness. Uh, The reformers spoke of it as an alien righteousness. It's not self-originating. It is not our moral achievement. It is the righteousness that comes from outside of us and is given to us and covers us. It is the righteousness and the beauty of Jesus Christ. That's what the cross accomplishes. So that God sees us in Christ. And do you know what he sees? He sees something that delights him. And the Apostle Paul could write to the church in Corinth and remind them, it's because because God chose to love you that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. The Lord Jesus Christ, because of his sacrificial atoning death, is making us his beautiful, spotless bride. And do you know what the Lord Jesus sees in you if you're in Christ? He sees the sinless creation that he's turning you into. He's seeing something that radiates out the love and beauty that he has bestowed on you. And so we do not need to be insecure about his love for us. Do you know what? He is so keen that we come to be where he is. The Lord Jesus is inviting us into a relationship of spiritual intimacy with us. We don't need to be anxious that he doesn't want us. He does. He finds us beautiful. And if you're not a Christian today and you're listening to this and and you, there's something in you that goes, wow, I, I know what I'm like. How, how do I get to know this Jesus? How can I know this transforming love? How, how can I know this transforming grace? That God would call me right with him, righteous with him, find me beautiful. How does this happen? How do you, how do you meet Jesus so he changes you? Well, the answer is there in verse 8. Follow the tracks of the sheep. If you want to meet the shepherd Jesus, go to where his sheep are, and there you'll find him. So if you're watching this on live stream and you'd like to start attending the church, get in touch with the office and Moira can help you book some tickets. Look for ways that you can spend time with Christians who are looking at the Bible together and you will find that as you do so, you too will encounter Jesus. And I love verses 12 to 14 because it speaks of an intimacy, of a secure relationship where the two parties are conscious of each other, and yet there's still, they're still a separation. They're not together, but they're so aware of each other. Look at verse 12. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyard of Engedi. Although they're, they're separated, there's this intimacy between them so that each of them is drawn to considering the other. You know, there's a perfume that when I smell it, 
my thoughts turn immediately to my wife. She wears this beautiful perfume. I have to smell it, and I'm just thinking of her. It's a, I love it. And the king um, in, in this song has this lingering smell of her perfume, and it directs his thoughts to her. And the perfume cluster that hangs around her neck makes her think of him. And she longs to be uh, in that place again where he is close to her. And so the insecurity is gone now. She is reassured of his love. And now there is this loving and secure intimacy that is enjoyed between them. Well, this morning, although we are physically separated from King Jesus, he gave us a meal so that we might remember him and be reassured of his love for us. See, out of his great mercy and grace, King Jesus invites you to his table today. To receive, once again, the, the, the tokens of his undying love. His body was broken. His blood was poured out to secure your forgiveness, your pardon, your cleansing raised from the dead, ascended to God's right hand. While we are physically separated from him, he is truly present now by his spirit. You know, the book of Revelation describes the prayers of the saints as like incense, sweet incense before the throne. As we turn our hearts to him in praise and prayer, he smells his people and delights in our praise and our worship. And the heaven is singing of the worthiness of the Lamb because his blood purchased us, people from every tribe and language and people. And as we eat and drink this morning, we are joyfully looking forward to the day when we will be physically present with him. There's a real resurrection body. He really will return. And we really will sit and feast around the table of the king.